for the first three days instead because they fear, wrongly, that this early milk is too strong for a tiny baby to digest. These far-off communities do not know that giving honey to a baby creates a risk of infant botulism. From our first year of life, human tastes are astonishingly diverse. As omnivores, we have no inbuilt knowledge of which foods are good and safe. Each of us has to use our senses to figure out for ourselves what is edible, depending on what's available. In many ways, this is a delightful opportunity. It's the reason there are such fabulously varied ways of cooking in the world. But we haven't paid anything like enough attention to another consequence of being omnivores— which is that eating is not something we are born instinctively knowing how to do, like breathing. It is something we learn. A parent feeding a baby is training him or her how food should taste. At the most basic level, we have to learn what is food and what is poison. We have to learn how to satisfy our hunger and also when to stop eating. Unlike the anteater, which eats only small termites, we have few natural instincts to fall back on. Out of all the choices available to us as omnivores, we have to figure out which foods are likable, which are lovable, and which are disgusting. From these preferences, we create our own pattern of eating as distinctive as a signature. Or that's how it used to be. In today's food culture, many people seem to have acquired uncannily homogenous tastes, markedly more so than in the past. In 2010, two consumer scientists argued that the taste preferences of childhood provided a new way of thinking about the causes of obesity. They noted a self-perpetuating cycle. Food companies push foods high in sugar, fat, and salt, which means that children learn to like them, and so the companies invent ever more of these foods that contribute to unhealthy eating habits. The main influence on a child's palate may no longer be a parent, but a series of food manufacturers whose products, despite their illusion of infinite choice, deliver a monotonous flavour hit quite unlike the more varied flavours of traditional cuisine. I went to the cinema with one of my children recently. We stood at the ice cream concession and I realised with a jolt that almost all of the options other than plain vanilla contained chocolate in one form or another. Would we pick mint chocolate chunk, or cherry chocolate chunk, or chocolate ice cream with chocolate brownie pieces, or caramel ice cream with pieces of caramel chocolate? The danger of growing up surrounded by these endless sweet and salty industrial concoctions is not that we are innately incapable of resisting them, but that the more frequently we eat them, especially in childhood, the more they train us to expect all food to taste this way. Once you recognize the simple fact that food preferences are learned, many of the ways we currently approach eating start to look a little weird. To take a small example, consider the parents who go to great lengths to hide vegetables in children's meals. Is broccoli really so terrible that it must be concealed from innocent minds? 
Whole cookbooks have been devoted to this arcane pursuit. It starts with the notion that children have an innate resistance to vegetables and will only swallow them unawares, blitzed into pasta sauce or baked into sweet treats. They could never learn to love zucchini for its own sake. In our harried, sleep-deprived state, as parents we find it hard to play the long game. We think we are being clever when we smuggle some beets into a cake. Ha! Tricked you into eating root vegetables. But since our children are not conscious that they are consuming beets, the main upshot is to entrench their liking for cake. A far cleverer thing would be to help children learn to become adults who choose vegetables consciously of their own accord. By failing to see that eating habits are learned, we misunderstand the nature of our current diet predicament.